My name is Cephas. I'm uh, part of the team of elders here at One Tribe. And if you're new, Karibu Tena. Uh, we just love uh, having new people. Uh, we, we love it that you chose to be with us uh, this morning when you could be lying in bed. I don't know if you're a cricket fan. Are there cricket fans here? Anybody? Okay, I'm alone as a cricket fan. All right, I, I, I feel very isolated. But anyway, if you're a cricket fan, the Cricket World Cup for One Day Internationals has just begun. So you could have been watching that at home. Or you could have been in some other church. There are many great churches in Nairobi. So we don't take it for granted that you're with us. So, Karibu. And uh, you've joined us in a great time. I think it's always a great time. But now particularly, uh, we're going through a series as a church called Nairobi Yangu. Uh, this Kanairo. What's going on in our Nairobi? And we've been talking about some of the issues and the struggles that we face in our great city. And so the first week we spoke about uh, tribalism, although uh, that seems to be now kind of Kericho area. It's where it's really burning. Uh, then last week we spoke about sex. And uh, the whole idea is that we as the church have got something to say. And so we said, hey, come, let's talk. And uh, this week, I'll be talking about addictions. So if you have your Bible, please would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. But just to help to set the scene, and so you know where we're going, uh, I'm just going to give you some uh, a basic definition, kind of look into this whole area of addictions and how it affects Nairobi, and then we'll... Uh, jump into the text. So just, just so you know what I mean, and we, to make sure we mean the same thing. I got this definition of addiction from my Cleveland clinic, which is like a medical website. And it says, addiction is a chronic, lifelong condition that involves compulsive seeking and taking of a substance, a performing of an activity, despite negative or harmful consequences. And so, from that definition, we see a couple of things. We see that addictions are chronic, which means that it's something that just doesn't go away. You try and kick the habit, but it just keeps coming back. But we also see that uh, they're compulsive. It means that this is not something that's completely under your control. Uh, we say that I have an addiction, but more likely, your addiction has you. And uh, when the American Society of Addiction Medicine define addiction, they, they talk of it as a chronic brain disorder. So it just doesn't happen from having a lack of willpower or because you made bad decisions. Actually, your brain chemistry has changed. Uh, addictions are something to take seriously. They are a real mental health problem. And as we think about that, as we think about chronic, we think about compulsive, we also see that it's not just substance, where we kind of just associate substance abuse, but also activities. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, just infographics just showing some of the different types of uh, addictions. There you've got the substances, alcohol, drugs, depression, or anti-anxiety kind of drugs. We've heard of the opioid crisis in the U.S. Chai and kahawa. Yes, they do make it. I know there are some among us here that if you don't have chai or kahawa for two days, your family need to get a restraining order from the police. Weed, uh, bangi, we had a whole politician uh, doing his campaign poll or his campaign uh, run based on this idea of legalizing weed. Mushrooms. And if you're wondering, what are people taking? Mushrooms? No, no, it's no. We're not talking about... Uh, we're talking about hallucinogenics. And uh, the younger people might know what that's all about. Tobacco, sheesh, and cocaine. And then we've got kind of behavioral or process or non-substance addictions and gambling video games, sex, and uh, here we've got an X and a Y chromosome, 
And now we know there's X and X, or Y and Y. Social media and devices, porn, masturbation, clout. I, I didn't know that was an addiction. It was introduced to me while I was uh, preparing for this message. And it's the idea of wanting to have influence, wanting to be known, chasing likes and the like. Uh, but also there's kind of people pleasing. Sometimes you can find somebody who's always in a different relationship. They, they can't be single for any period of time. And uh, we would also can classify that as an addiction when you're dating the wrong kind of people. We've got workaholics and just making money. You want to see your M-Pesa balance, even though it hasn't changed, you keep checking that balance to just see, has, has something come in? And that can also be an addiction. So, we've talked a little bit about what are addictions, and the question I'm sure you have is, how can I know if I have an addiction? I can see in some faces a look of guilt already, like uh, you can see yourself in one of those. We've put together just a small um, diagnostic kind of questionnaire. We, we took it from a medical diagnostic, which is for substance abuse, and we tried to just modify it a little bit and you can get it on the QR code and uh, just fill in those questions. And the way it goes is this way. So if you answer yes to any of the two questions, then you've got a mild addiction. If you answer yes to four to five questions, then you've got, you've got a moderate addiction. It's now something to start to get worried about. If you answer yes to more than six questions, then you urgently need to seek some help and we'll be glad to speak to you. And I, I, we won't have time to do the survey here during the sermon, but please feel free to do that afterwards. But just an infographic that kind of shows some of the questions, some of the hints as to whether you might be struggling with an addiction in a particular area. So if you have a craving to use a particular substance or to do a particular act activity, and if you're wondering, does chocolate count? Yes, it does. And then you're wanting to cut down or stop, but you're not managing to do it. You're wanting to cut down on watching Manchester United football matches because your team is doing so badly, but you can't stop. That might be an addiction. You're taking a substance in larger amounts or for longer than you're meant to, or you're engaging in a particular activity. You go online, you think I'm going to spend five minutes, the next moment you're looking at your watch, it's been two hours and you had some homework, you had some work to do. You're neglecting other parts of your life because of that substance or that activity. You, you, people are like, hey, we don't see you anymore. You're, you're, you're not in church. What's, what's, what's going on? We used to be in this exercise thing together. We used to do this activity. But you are now stuck with something else. And then you continue to use or do that activity even when it causes problems in relationships. People who are close to you, they begin to look at this thing and say, hey, we're a little bit worried about how you're doing X or Y. And you're like, I don't care about how you feel about it, about this relationship. I want to continue doing this thing or using this drug. Finally, you're using substances even when it puts you in danger or doing that activity, you know, texting while you are driving, answering that, checking the feed on Twitter in a dangerous place while you're crossing the road. How often do we see that happening? And if you do get worried as you're answering the survey or as you're listening to the sermon, hey, that, that sounds like me. It turns out you're not alone in this Canairo. It's a city that is grappling with addictions. Just, just watch the news. Look at our billboards. Look at the feed of adverts that you get when you get online. And so we, we did a, a couple of polls with our young adults on a group with about 100 and tried to work out the top five addictions in Nairobi and in reverse order. I want you to try and guess what's, what's number five. What would you say is the fifth biggest addiction in Nairobi? I've got alcohol, some gambling, cloud chasing, 
What else from this side? Any guesses? Social media. Number five, from our bona fide verified poll with genuine Nairobians is gambling. One article claimed that Kenyans spend 242 million shillings per day on betting. That's 2,800 bob per second. In a survey done, 84% of university students said they had tried gambling. Number four, what do you think is number four? Social media, any guesses from this end? Number four? Alcohol? That end, any guesses? Six? Okay, I've got a mole from, no, you weren't in the first service. I thought it was someone from first service. Yes, weed. So one in three Kenyans, so if there's a hundred of us here, that means 33 of us. <laughs> Just do the maths. Which one are you? Are using some type of drug. 6.9% of Nairobians are using weed. And this use has grown by 90% over the last five years. It's becoming fashionable, isn't it? Elon Musk saying, this is how I work hard, guys. I smoke weed and I can work 16 hours a day, and Nairobians are like, yes, that's what I wanted to hear. Number three, we're getting to the top. What do you think is number three? Sex. They got it right. Now, I'm not going to give you any stats about sex. Just look at last week's message. Number two. Okay, guys, the two biggest addictions we have in Nairobi. What's number two? All right, so I, I put, we kind of separated sex, masturbation, and porn, but I think if we had put them together, they could have been close to the top, but they're not. It's social media. One study said that 8.3 million Kenyans were active on social media. As a Zimbabwean, I remember arriving here, sitting in a matatu, and being just amazed that somebody on a matatu would be just swiping through Instagram. And I have to be honest, I also have that compulsive behavior. When I see you swiping, I'm really interested in what's happening on that screen. In fact, an aside, when I was in South Africa, uh, uh, I think a year ago, I was, over, I was looking at someone's phone and his girlfriend was breaking up with him, which was so sad. But those are some of the things you get to see, guys. So don't be on your phone, on a matatu, otherwise everybody is in your business, okay? So 8.3 million Kenyans on social media, three hours a day. Number one, Pombe. You guys are like, yes, that sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> so one in eight Kenyans take alcohol, which is one in five for males and one in 20 for females. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how this translates to alcoholism. But what I've heard it said in Africa, we've got no such thing as social drinking. When somebody asks you, do you drink? They're not asking, do you take social alcohol? They're asking, hey, do you, do you get drunk? And maybe you're this, you've heard this list of five kind of like monsters that have Nairobi in their clutches, and you're thinking, man, this is bad. Bye. Or maybe... You're seeing yourself in what I'm saying. That, hey, Cephas, it sounds like you're talking to me. Not just one thing, but a couple of things. Or maybe it sounds like a close friend or a relative. And you think this is bad. Is there a way out? Is there hope? And our addictions say to us, no, there is no way out. There is no hope. You are like this and you'll be like this till the day you die. But when we come to scripture, we find a different story. This is what we call the good news. 
of the gospel. And just to help us find some hope and see this way out, I want to invite Gitao, who's going to share a bit of his story with us. Why don't we give him a hand as he comes up? Gitao was just meant to be in the first meeting. I called him at 6 a.m. this morning to ask, can you do this? And he was like, yes, I can. But I can only be in first meeting because we're not feeling well. But after the first meeting, he decided to stay over. So why don't we give him another hand and just appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. All right, Gitao, why don't you tell us a bit about your journey with addiction? All right, so... um. I'll just do it like I did in the first service. So here I introduce myself as Getao, but in another meeting that I go to, I introduce myself. Hi, I'm Getao. I'm an alcoholic and a recovering drug addict. Um, I've been sober about 15 years now. Wow. Um, so I, got, I started... <laughs> so I started uh, using substances, um, alcohol, marijuana, and cigarettes. Uh, basically just out of primary school. I was uh, about 14 years old, and I, I immediately liked the, the effect. Um, like, you know, like Sif, as I said, I was not a social drinker. I drank to get drunk. If I wasn't getting drunk, what was the point? Um, also, it worked with the kind of persona of the image I had of myself. I liked uh, the bad boy, thug, rude boy, whatever you want to call it. That was the persona that I saw maybe on TV or whatever. That's what I wanted to emulate. And, you know, bad boys, they drink, they smoke. And so that's what I did. I drank and I smoked. Um, so, yeah, that's what, that was the beginning. Thug for life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what was the impact of this addiction on your life and on those around you? So the immediate impact on my life was I got in trouble a lot. Um, so I got, uh, I got kicked out of high school. I got um, I got a lot of, I got into a lot of trouble with the law with the police. I've been arrested uh, very very many times. I spent many many nights in jail. Wow. Um, my first time getting arrested, I stole my parents' car on a Sunday during church, and I had a car accident and I was uh, sent to Kilimani Police Station. But uh, I was 15, so I was uh, I was released very quickly. But towards the end of my addiction, my longest stay in jail was about, uh, about 10 days. Uh, I called my father when I was in jail. I was like, you know, I've been arrested again. He was like, well, I'll get you when I'm free. So he was free 10 days later when he came to get me. <laughs> so it had a, a lot of impact on my, on my education, um, on my relationship with family, and also on missed opportunities because I drank during the formative years of uh, my, my young adult life. So um, I did not perform well in school. Um, I joke it took me 10 years to get a four-year university degree. So yeah, it, took, uh, it had its toll on my life. Huh. Wow, that sounds uh, crazy. And how about your relationship with those who are close to you? So my relationships with my family were estranged, is a, is a good way of putting it. Um, my father didn't talk to me. Towards the end of my alcoholism, I had no relationship with my dad. He treated me like, um, like he didn't see me because oh. of, uh, you know, he was a lot of disappointment. Also, my parents had invested heavily in my education. They even sent me out of the country. And uh, what I did with that money is I went on parties and I went on uh, MTV Spring Break and all this other kind of crazy life. And uh, so there was a lot of disappointment in that, in that regard. My mother was, was obviously very disappointed. Um, there were a lot of interventions before I got sober. So um, I'd go home and thinking that, uh, well, there are more cars in the parking than usual. And it would be people there to talk to me, counsel me, pray for me, which I was always thinking, well, get, you know, get it over with. I've got things to do. Um, you know, so I had a very strange relationship even with my, with my siblings. Um, uh, my last... My last drunk, uh, the last time I got drunk before I got sober, um, I got drunk for about 10 days. I disappeared from home, 10 days or two weeks. Uh, time was a blur in those days. And uh, so I met up with my mom and um, 
you know, she told me something that a mother I, I imagine never wants to tell a child. She was like, you know, I wish you were dead. I wish you could just die so I could bury you, cry, and move on with my life. But what I'm seeing you doing to your life, you destroying your life, every time you leave this house, nobody knows when you are going to come back and in what condition you will be in when you come back is, is worse than having you die. So I wish you, I wish you would just go on ahead and die. Wow. Um, but anyway, um, God works in mysterious ways because that was my last drunk. After that, um, my mother took me to speak to an addiction counselor. And um, there was a list of questions. There were about 20 questions. Um, does drinking affect your relationship? Does drinking affect your responsibilities? Blah, blah, blah. About 20 of these questions. And the last question was, um, does drinking affect your sleep patterns? And I realized how these questions were going a bit late in the game. By question 19, I ticked yes, 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 yes to all these questions. So the last one, being clever, I lied and said no. But uh, turns out I only had to say yes to three of them to be confirmed as an alcoholic. I said yes to 19 out of 20. Wow. So there I was, confirmed alcoholic. But um, soon after that, um, actually on the very same day, I was introduced to uh, a fellowship um, of recovery uh, from alcoholism. Uh, the fellowship is called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not, here to, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just here to say that it is a fellowship that I have attended for those past 15 years, and I still attend. Um, and through that fellowship, through the people I met, I have been able to stay away from alcohol, from marijuana, from cigarettes, and all other sort of addictive activities that used to go on in my life. And uh, just as a quick note, I, I didn't say this in the first service, but um, so my, my recovery birthday is January 31st. And uh, this year, January 31st, I was at a service, and uh, Cephas, you spoke, and you spoke about uh, Zacchaeus, and how it's the only um, incident in the Bible when Jesus invited himself to somebody's home. And that, that someone really resonated with me, because um, that has been my journey of salvation. For me, Jesus invited himself into my house, into my heart. I had no idea what was going on, but... Um, through a series of events. So my life had changed and um, you know, now I was sober, but I was like, I need more. You know, sobriety was great and I wasn't drinking, I wasn't smoking, but there was something just, I just wanted more of this Jesus, more. I didn't know, I didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but I was like, I need more. Whatever is going on, I, I need more of this. So I started searching. Um, we, we went to several churches with my wife. Um, my wife, uh, we got married in sobriety. She's never seen me drunk. She's uh, one of the gifts of my sobriety, her and my family. And um, she just knows that I attend these meetings and it's important for me. And so, you know, when we were looking around for churches, I was doing Bible study. I then ended up at One Tribe Church. Um, I plugged in. Um, it took a while. You know, I didn't plug in immediately, but it took me some time. But eventually, I did plug in. And um, one day, I was in, at home having uh, some prayer and meditation time. And I, I asked myself a series of questions, kind of like the questions that I'd been asked at the rehab. Um, so do I believe in Jesus? Yes. Is Jesus in my life? Um, is he the Lord of my life? And I said yes to this. So I was like, you know, I think, I think I'm born again. I think I'm saved. So that was my, that was my salvation story. I didn't, um, I don't have a particular date and time, but I know that Jesus invited himself into my life, changed things around, even changed the furniture, the drapes, everything without asking my permission. But today, I am very grateful for Jesus coming into my life and transforming it the way he did. Amazing. Um, I'm going to release Guitar now, but would love to pray for him uh, before I do so. And Guitar, just wanted to uh, share these words with you from Joel. I think... You know, these are words that are uh, very often used, uh, especially in the context of Africa, when we talk about how God will restore certain things. And so Joel 2.23 says, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I'll make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the strip, stripping locust, and the gnawing lo locust. 
my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Yeah, I, it just kind of resonated with me when you were saying that you felt like uh, you wasted years. And I feel like in the times to come, that uh, you're going to see something of God's hand, uh, that when you look back, you'll see that God was shaking you and that um, he didn't waste that time. From your side, you were wasting it, but from God's side, it was like he was preparing you. And uh, that even the sense of looking back with regret and thinking I could have done this, I would have been here. Uh, that God is going to put you in a place where you're going to be like, wow, only God could have put me here. And even if my life had turned out differently in those early years, I could never have been here. And you will be able to say with the Israelites that the Lord has done wondrously for us. Amen. Uh, just a quick one before I go. Um, that, um, that is very relevant in my life today because um, like some people may be wondering, why is this guy sitting up on stage telling us his poor history and the bad things that he has done? And he's the guy who takes care of two to fives for kids' church. <laughs> So the, the reason I do this is that, and I hope nobody get, takes this in bad taste, is so that I can be of help. Because there are many of us who are still suffering from alcoholism and addiction out there. And there's a feeling of being ostracized, like you do not belong, like you cannot come out, you can't come. And there's nobody who can understand. Especially when you come to church and people are clean and sober and well-dressed on Sunday. And you feel like, you know, those aren't my people. So to those people who are in alcoholism and addiction... I am your people, you know. I know what it's like to wake up dirty, to wake up in a ditch, to wonder, why am I doing this to myself? To be in your quiet moments and think, God, I don't want to drink, but I must. You know, um, I joke that sometimes, um, it's a joke, but um, it's also pretty serious, that I'd drink without my own permission. I'd be going to the wines and spirits saying to myself, I don't want to drink, I don't want to drink, and I'm going to drink. And it was such a sense of hopelessness and of loss. But... The fact that I can sit up here and say, God did this for me and he brought me out. He can do it for you. So maybe it's a brother, a sister, a father, whatever. And uh, you, know, you, you may want to reach out. I am here and I'm available. If you want my number, my contacts, anything after service, you can reach out. Because in God's economy, there is no waste. Mm. So even in those years when I was in whatever addiction and alcoholism that I was in, it made me the man that I am today. And it gave me the opportunity to be of service to that person who may still be suffering out there. So thanks. Shall we pray, please? Shall we pray? Why don't you just stretch out your hand to guitar? <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this amazing testimony of what you have done in guitar's life. And we celebrate with him. We say what wondrous things you have done. Lord, we remember how the psalmist says, those who sow in tears will reap in great joy. And Lord God, we heard of the struggles and the tears of his family. And we pray, Lord God, that there will be an abundance harvest of joy. And Lord, even as we listen to guitar, we can hear the great power in his testimony. And Lord, we pray that it would not just be the power of words and not just be the power of what he feels he has gone through, but let it be the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, would you anoint him to be a witness uh, for your mighty power? And Lord, we pray that many, many, many would be delivered and set free, uh, even through his testimony and through his openness to be able to walk with people on this journey. And Lord God, even as we read of the words of how the years that are lost, you're able to uh, cause them to, to be recovered. And even more, I pray that for Gital in his education, Lord, in his career, in his business, in, in, in their household, practically, for, for physical needs. Would you richly, richly bless them? And Lord God, would you give him influence even beyond his wildest imagination? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Great, guys. What an amazing story. And it's another reason why we all need to share our stories. We'll discover that God, Jesus, is doing amazing things in people's lives all around us. And we won't be stuck with that question, is this Christianity thing really true? Does it work? When you hear such a story, you've got a testimony live in 3D and in Technicolor. 
But with that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll be reading from verse 24. Uh, I panicked a bit. I saw it's 12. And I was like, what? It's already 12. But I realized this is the 11 a.m. <laughs> and just to give a bit of background to the passage that we'll be looking at, it was written by Paul to this church in Corinth. And uh, we're doing something that I normally wouldn't like to do. We are cutting in on Paul uh, when he's in mid-flow or mid-thought. The passage that we're looking at actually starts at the beginning of chapter 8. And the way 1 Corinthians is structured uh, is that uh, it seems that some people had come from Corinth and they'd also brought letters, but they also brought news about the churches. And so Paul starts by writing the letter and uh, addressing issues that were there. So in the first four chapters, he's talking about divisions that are in the church and he's addressing that. And then in chapter 5, he begins to talk about there was a certain man who seemed to be having sexual relations with his father's wife and then he addresses that. And then it seems that they were also taking one another to court. And so he addresses that. And there seemed to be uh, this question around sleeping with temple prostitutes and whether that's okay. And so Paul addresses that. And then a shift comes in chapter 7 where Paul says, okay, concerning the things that you wrote to me. And then he's, he addresses questions around marriage. And in the passage that we're looking at, there seem to have been questions around food uh, that was dedicated to idols or eating meat from idol temples. Now, what you need to understand was that this was a big question in uh, this whole area at the time, because basically these pagan temples were like the butcheries. You kind of couldn't find meat in the market that hadn't come through these temples. And so some people were saying, oh no, it's, it's okay to eat that meat. But some are thinking, oh, I used to practice idolatry and now I'm being uh, introduced back into it. And then some were saying, actually, we can even attend uh, the temple feasts. It's okay because we know we have knowledge and we know that this is all nothing. And so Paul, rather than just giving them a set of rules to say, hey, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And sometimes when we hear these topics like sex and addictions, you come prepared to say, Mchungaji, okay, just tell me how far should I go on this thing? Okay, just tell me the rules concerning this area of my life. That's all I want to know. But Paul says, no, I don't just want to give you rules we, we're not just here to tell you what to think, but to teach you how to think. Uh, that's the whole aim of discipleship, is to change the way we think, to, way, to change the way we view the world, to have what we might call a biblical worldview. So Paul begins by addressing, and he says, no, it's not about what you know. It's about living a life of love. And I want you to look at this question, in how can you love, how can you serve others? And then in chapter 9, he, he gives himself as an example of how he lays aside his own rights so that others may benefit through the gospel. And where we jump in, he'll then, he'll then talk about himself, how he's also running in this race and how he lives his life so that he might get reward. So he gives kind of a positive example and then he gives a negative example. He points us in chapter 10, we'll see to the Israelites and their journey from Egypt, how when they went through the desert, instead of getting to God's promises in the promised land, any Azimio supporters still waiting for that promised land? But they died in the desert. And then Paul draws out lessons from this to say, hey, we're all in danger from this thing. But actually God has made a way out for us. And as you come to the end of chapter 10, he then gives some other wisdom and finally says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So that's the context of these passages. So I'll, I'll read, it's going to be a fairly lengthy passage, but please just do track with me. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, something that's passing away, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, but our, about our fathers who were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we will not crave evil things as they also crave. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpent. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Amen. So we're not going to go into a great uh, depth of exposition, but I mainly want to draw out three things as pertains to addictions. Firstly, is that God has an amazing plan for you. You might be here, you've passed through many things. We, we heard the things that Guitar passed through and it's easy to feel like maybe your, your life has been a waste. Maybe you, you're not going to achieve certain things because of your past. But actually, God has an amazing plan for you. Secondly, you're your own worst enemy. Thirdly, God has made a way out for you. All right, so let's get into that first point. God's got an amazing plan for you. As we look into this text, the two examples that Paul gives, one of himself, when he says he's, he's living for this reward that's not going to perish, this is very pertinent when it comes to the idea of addictions. You see, because what happens with an addiction is that your body or yourself, your mind is seeking reward. There's a reward center in your brain that kind of releases dopamine. And we do the things that we're doing because we're looking for that reward. Uh, whether that reward is a little bit of pleasure, whether that reward is comfort, whether that reward is satisfaction, whether that reward is a sense of well-being, a sense of peace, whether that reward is even a sense of community. We are seeking reward. But the thing with the rewards that addictions offer is that they mortgage your future, long-term, more uh, valuable rewards for short-term, cheap, short-lasting rewards. And so, rather than investing in your family, investing in, in your kids, investing in your relationships, instead you, you get a, a cheap thrill, whether it's, it's, it's through sex, just, just that moment, or it's, it's through that, that high you get from, from a drug or alcohol or, or the time that you've spent on your device. And, you know, when, when I'm working, I've, I've got very intense work. I, I write technical proposals for scientific and, and, and technical uh, kind of institutions, and it's very, very intense. And sometimes I just need a break. And actually, if you do the studying, what you need is to go up, you know, take a 15-minute walk if you've been sitting at a computer all day. But there, there's other like Twitter feeds, sports, news, gossip, and it just promises that little bit of relief to come out of what I'm doing. But it doesn't give long-lasting reward. And when you bring it more to kind of this biblical perspective. Is that actually we are created to go after reward. My Cleveland Clinic, which is this medical website, says humans are intrinsically motivated to seek reward. We are intrinsically, biologically motivated to seek reward. And so what addictions are doing is that they're robbing you of the reward that God created and designed for you to pursue and offering you a cheap gimmick, something that won't last long. 
And we see this with the Israelites. God has spoken to them about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But they were remembering the garlic, the leeks, the food they used to have in Egypt and conveniently forgot about the slave masters. And so they mortgaged the promised land for a few cheap thrills. They glutted themselves on meat until they died. They, they slept with these Midianite ladies and they all perished in the desert. In verse, in verse 26 of chapter 9, we see Paul comparing himself to an athlete. And uh, up on the screen, you'll just see a picture of one of my favorite athletes at the moment. Do you know who she is? Okay, what's her name? Faith. Faith Kipiagon. I mean, she's just killing it. She's amazing. She holds the world record in 1,500 meters, 5,000 meters, and one mile. She's representing Kenya so well. Now imagine you arrived in a bar and you saw Faith looking like she's drunk this much. She smells like it. She's walking like it. She's tipsy like it. Or you saw her sitting. She's dragging on a cigarette. I've never smoked, by the way. Or news started coming out that Faith has been skipping practice. Has been skipping practice because she's spending four or five hours a day on social media. Like her coach, you know, is like, knows, doesn't know what to do with her. She's, she's now cloud chasing. She's just following videos of herself on TikTok, winning. You know, and there are different memes about it, showing her winning. Imagine you had a moment with faith. What would you say to her? Why don't you just turn to your neighbor? In any of those scenarios, if you manage to have a moment with faith, what would you say to her? Just say, turn and speak to your neighbor. Okay, what are some of the words of advice, wise words that you'd give to faith? From this side, what would you guys say to faith? Run faster. Okay, from the reaction, it sounds like your advice is, is not taken by the crowd. What, from here, anything? Watch Amcheso. From here? You're tripping. Do we have some thugs for life here? You are tripping. From here? Any wise words? You're better than this. Any, any words from the deaf community? And so, the general feeling is like, Faith, you're putting Kenya on the map. What's going on? Why, why are you sabotaging? We had a great thing going. Man, you're killing it. What's, what's wrong? Have you had a bad day? Do you need somebody to talk to? Faith, you're, you're so talented, man. How, how can you throw all that talent away? Faith, do whatever it takes. Get some help if you need to. But man, you've got a bright future. And friends, we, we might not have the ability to run 1,500 meters or 5,000 or a mile in the times that faith does. But the Bible says that each one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God has invested you with intricate detail into your life. It says that if, if you're in Christ, you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God 
prepared for you in advance. Listen, God prepared your life in advance of you being here. God thought about all the details around where you'd be, what opportunities would be around you. And it's not so that you can live a second-rate life. Paul says, listen, run that you might win. I just told the story in the first meeting of yesterday. I was just taking a walk along the road in our neighborhood. And then there was a matatu passing. And then these three guys, they were riding on, on cycling on bikes. They went past the matatu. And they looked serious. They, you know, they were in this kind of posture. Their, even their helmets looked aerodynamic. You know, those ones that are pointed. And the sounds that their bikes were making, they were like, Woo. And I was like, wow, man, these guys are serious. They're flying past the Matatu. I wonder what speed they're going at. And then as I walked along the road, I saw some other cyclists. They must have been in the same whatever. Now, these other guys, even the posture is different. You know, guys sitting up, the helmet looks different. It doesn't look like it's got any thoughts to aerodynamics. And the way this person is cycling, the expression on their face looks like somebody has forced them. Or they're just doing this like, it's like a dentist's visit. And some of us, we're living our lives not to win. Not as though God has got an amazing plan for you. But as though you're here to make up the numbers. I remember when I was in school, you always had those students who needed to leave their marks put on a tree, on a desk, Cephas was here in 2021. And you think you're just here to live a mark in life. I was here between X, whatever's going to be on your gravestone. No, no, you're here because God's got an amazing plan for you. And he wants you to be in it, to win it. But listen, you're your own worst saboteur. You're your own worst enemy when it comes to God's plan for you. And some of you are thinking, no, no, no. The new finance bill, the taxes that are on me, that's my worst enemy. Paul kind of shows it both for himself. He says, listen, I'm not taking it for granted that I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to pursue what God has called me to. He says, I beat myself. I, rather than being enslaved to myself, I make myself a slave. I discipline myself. When he, when he uses this language of, of wrestling, it's, it's like grappling. If, if you've ever watched the, the wrestling that happens at the Olympics, when people are in hand-to-hand, in -hand, and Paul says, I grapple with myself. This, this is life or death. I'm, I'm taking this thing seriously. And then when he gives the negative example of, of the Israelites, he talks about having them, them having these cravings. In chapter 10, verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as, as they did. And that word that is used for crave in, in other translations, it's, it's to desire, to long for, to give your heart to something. And it comes from the Greek word epithemeo. And this is what the theological dictionary of the New Testament says about this word. It says the essential point in epithemeo is that it is a desire as an impulse. So it's saying it's a desire that moves us as a motion of the will. It is in fact lust since the thought of satisfaction gives pleasure and that, that of non-satisfaction, pain. And this idea of epithemia is at the heart of addiction. It's, it's this desire that moves your will, that even when you say, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, you find yourself doing it. Why? Because you're moved by this craving. And it's not necessarily related just to things that we might say are sinful or things that are bad, Although it's, it's taken that sense here. Actually, it's, it's, the word itself means focused. Epi is focused on. And thumas is a passionate desire. It's, it's when 
we make this desire ultimate when it becomes something that rules over us, something that even defies logic, that defies our will. And friends, the reality, when Paul has finished talking about the Israelites, he says, let, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because there's no one who's safe in this grappling with self. As one lecturer put it, we're all living on the edge of addiction. In one sense, it's good news that if you're facing addiction, you're not alone. But in the other sense, it's this red danger warning sign that no one is safe. We're our own worst enemies. We're our own worst enemies also because we desire lesser things. So it's not just, you see, if, if we desired to glorify God with this great passion, then it wouldn't be a problem. But instead of having this ultimate desire that is meant to drive our lives, we've got these lesser desires. Jeremiah co compared it to somebody who uh, forsakes a living spring of water and takes a broken cistern. And he said, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken the fountain of living water and they've hewn for themselves these cisterns that are broken. And so we desire this thing that actually cannot give us what we ultimately need and we reject the one who created us with those desires that he would be the source of their fulfillment. And when, when C.S. Lewis is kind of thinking about this in a sermon called Weight of Glory, this is what he says. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. You see, the very things that our addictions promise us, God has already offered them to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the coast. And listen to his final words. We are far too easily pleased. And sometimes when we're having this discussion in the church, it's like the church is a killjoy. The church is like social media. Church is like coffee? No. And the church is out to kill your joy. And the message that comes from us is like, no, no, no. But actually what we see when we read the promises, the unblushing promises of reward. We see that in the church, we've got a much, much higher view on pleasure and reward than anything the world could offer. We're our own worst enemies because our desires are linked to what we worship. This is what one writer says. His name's Paul David Tripp, who's a big guy in biblical counseling. There's always something or someone ruling our hearts. And whatever rules our hearts will control our behavior. You see, in kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, in, in what we might call circular counseling theory, it's let's, let's try and change this behavior. Okay, you have an addiction to alcohol, maybe let's try and change that into an addiction to exercising, right? Because exercising is more healthy, that's, that's good for you. But what we see is that the heart of the problem, the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. And we think that, no, no, it's just a behavior, it's just a habit that I picked up. Well, the Bible says, no, it's a heart issue. What Jesus said when guys came and were talking to him about washing of hands and ceremonial washing, he said, listen, it's not what goes into you. It's not what you consume that's got a problem. It's what comes out of the heart. It's from the heart that you have drunkenness. It's from the heart 
that you have addictions. You don't know. Nairobi is highly sexualized. There's so much porn. It's so accessible. Anytime I click on a link, it just comes up. No, no. The problem is your heart. Why? Why is it important? Because, well, we've got many reasons of why we struggle with the addictions that we do. Right? I I went to the wrong school. I fell in with the wrong crowd. You see, it was my parents. Oh, I didn't have parents. It was my childhood. No, you don't understand. I, I had a, I've had a tough, stressful week. I've had a stressful day. No, no, no one cares about me. Listen, I'm not hurting anyone. Hey, look, it makes me feel good. I, I can't help myself. Everybody's doing it. Listen, you can't take this feeling away from me. But friends, God has an amazing plan for you. But you are your own worst enemy. You can sabotage this plan. And unless you come to that place where you admit that the problem is not out there, the problem is not the algorithms, right? The problem is not the billboards with alcohol on them. The problem is not, oh, my dad was an alcoholic and my grandfather was an alcoholic. I can't be any different. When you can admit that the problem is with me, you are ready for change. And the good news that we heard this morning is that God has made a way out for you. Sorry. Were you guys worried that I was going to pick this one up? No, don't worry. I, I was seeing some concerned faces. Like, I need a shot of vodka. No, don't worry. Friends, what have we been saying this morning? Listen, it doesn't matter what is in your past. It doesn't matter where you are today. God has an amazing plan for you. But we've also said, you're your own worst enemy. And you need to face up to that reality. But the good news is that God has made a way out for you. If this text said, listen, you need to find a way out, that would not be good news. If this text said you need to fix yourself before you come to God, that would not be good news. If this text said, hey, listen, sort your manenos out there and then when you're ready, you can come to church, that would not be good news. But what we find in the text is good news that it is God who has made a way out for us in this temptation. And this is the reality because what happened is that God himself took on human flesh and came to be one of us. You see, God just doesn't look at us from the great beyond, the great bearded man in the sky. He took on flesh. He became one of us. And when we read the, the scriptures, we see that when Jesus was baptized and he came out and he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, he went into the desert. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he ate nothing and he was tempted by the devil. And in that, he, he, he was, as it were, reenacting this journey of Israel from Egypt where they failed. Jesus, the true and greater Israel, the one who would fulfill Israel's calling to be a light to the world, he succeeded. You think, Jesus, did you have cravings? Yes, the devil came to him and said, listen, if you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus said, no, man shall not live on bread alone, but from any... The every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Listen, if it was just up to you, it was just up to you and I, 10 out of 10, we would fail. That's why we, we, we just don't need a good example. That's why we just don't need a good teacher. That's why we just don't need somebody who's walked the road before. We need a savior. And so when Jesus had overcome the temptation of the devil, we read that he died on a cross. Listen, at the heart of these addictions is the idea of idolatry. Exactly what Paul has been talking about in this passage. Martin Luther once said, you can't break any of 
the other commandment without breaking the first commandment, which is to have no other God besides God. And when we slip in, when we worship other things, friends, the reality is that our just punishment was to die, was to come under the judgment of God. But rather than we who are guilty coming under his just punishment, God put his wrath, his fierce anger on his innocent son, the one who had overcome every temptation and come out unscathed. Why did he do that? Because he loves you, because he's got an amazing plan for you and he was not going to let anything sabotage that plan. And the good news is that Jesus didn't just stay dead. After three days, some ladies went to try and prepare him in his burial and they found a young man sitting on top of the rock and asked, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated because everything that needed to be done has been done. In fact, when he was dying on the cross, he said, it is finished. Not I am finished. No, it is finished. That word translated from the Greek, tetelestai, is what used to be put on certificates of debt. When you're finished paying the debt, it would be stamped with tetelestai. It is finished. And what Jesus was saying is that the debt that you and I owed has been paid in full. The debt of our slavery to sin, our slavery to addiction has been paid in full. Listen, there is nobody, there is nothing, there is no addiction, there is no power that is a claim on you if you are in Christ because the price has been paid in full. The only question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? For some of you this morning, all you came to hear is that there is hope. There is a way out. You've lived under a shadow for so long. And this morning, God just wanted to draw the curtains. You thought it, it's, there's no hope. But actually, there is hope. God has made a way out. And the question is, do you believe it? Friends, we, we need to admit that we can't do it on our own. And sometimes it's, it's not just an admission to self. <clears throat> it's being in a community. We heard for Guitar how powerful meeting with somebody and being in this community helped him to be able to walk out. And listen, one of the lies that we believe or that we face when we're walking with addiction is that nobody will ever understand me. Or I'm going to be judged for this thing. I have to face it alone. But friends, part of the way out that God has provided is to be in community. Is to be with people who walk with you. People who remind you of scriptural truths when you've got no strength or no willpower to remember them yourself. And for some of you this morning, that's the step that you need to take. You need to come out of the shadows. You need to come out of isolation and be in community. And I believe that there's some, <clears throat> this message is particularly relevant for a friend or a relative. And if you're honest, you had given up hope on that friend or that relative. And if you're really, really honest, you've been even saying such things. You've been saying this is kind of the black sheep. You know uncle so-and-so. You know him. This is who he is. This is what he does. And this morning, I believe that God wants you to change the way you think. To begin to see that actually you are to bring hope in that situation. You are not to be a reflector, a mirror of hopelessness. But you are to bring 
the life of the gospel. You are to begin to pray over that cousin, over that uncle, over that friend, that they would encounter the gospel. You begin to ask God for opportunities to be able to share and that God will come in power in that person's life even through what you do. Amen. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over 